My name is Richard Root, and I'm a sinner. <laughs> I know it surprises you, of course. It surprises nobody more than my immediate family, but I am. I'm a, uh, I'm a sinner. Uh, and, and no more so than in the classic Hebrew sense of that word. You know, when they used the word sin, referring to themselves, they had this idea that, that the lives that they were living were less than the lives that they were meant to live. That somehow that they were less than what God had created them to be. Uh, sometimes you've heard the, uh, the word sin translated as missing the mark. And, and maybe that's a good translation for it. it that, that you were created for more than this. Have you ever had that feeling when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and say, well, I was made for more than this. I was made for more than this. And it's, it's been hard for members of at least my generation because we as a generation were taught to achieve. Our identity was strongly rooted in our performance. We had to win. We had to achieve. We never wanted anybody to see us fail. We didn't ask for help when something was wrong. We, we cultivated and we, we managed our image so carefully. Why perception is reality. So curate the best possible image for other people. Make yourself the hero of your own story. I remember somebody saying, don't let anybody get close enough to you to see your flaws. Compete, compete. Always compete. Now, I don't know if any of you grew up in that kind of environment. I saw a few nods of the head. But if that was the environment that you were raised in, and for me it wasn't so much at home, but certainly in school or in teams or in culture, that stuff really sticks with you. And, and it gets a hold of you somewhere deep inside. Eventually when the time came for me to go off to university, I got into the program of my dreams. I'd achieved the grades that I competed hard to achieve. And suddenly I found myself surrounded by a group of people who had also completed or competed at the highest level. They were all number one. And now we're swimming in a pool of number ones and, and I wasn't number one anymore, not even close to it. At the same time as I was wrestling through all of the emotions attached to that, I was also wrestling through some issues related to faith, and I was rereading the Gospels. But this time, reading with a, a new desire to understand what was going on. And one of the things that, that I saw most profoundly was how what was being modeled there and taught there, particularly by Jesus, contradicted in so many ways Everything that I had learned osmosively, is that a word? Learned by osmosis through much of my life. Oh, we celebrated Thanksgiving last weekend. What a gorgeous weekend it was, right? And what a, what a gorgeous week. And uh, during one of those beautiful days, I, I dug through my my drawer of old workout clothes, and I found a shirt, one of those running shirts. You know, you run a race, and they give you a shirt so you can remember the agony. Well, this was, um, this was called the Thanksgiving Turkey Run. This is from a while ago, more than 10 years ago. We were running in support of, um, of a frontline ministry that uh, had been opened up in Oakville. It's called Kerr Street Ministries. And we'd, we've moved to this glorious new center, and, and we were there and trying to engage with and serve the needs of the community. And so this was a fundraiser, and I'd signed up to run the 5K. 
And I trained for the 5K, and I was going to thrive, compete at the 5K. And I lined up there on the start line, and I went, and I was really clipping along. And I'm getting there 1K, 2K, 3K. My time I was aiming for was under 18 minutes, which is not great by any world standard, but good for me. And I get to about 4K, and uh, uh, and I realize I'm not seeing any indication that this is the last kilometer. Uh, and I get up on 5K, and there's no finish line anywhere. And so I find somebody, I lean into them and say, what's going on? And I said, actually, you're running the half marathon today. I, I had lined up for the wrong race. Uh, and I finished limping and, uh, and considerable agony. But uh, it stuck with me as an example of, of so many other things in life, those moments where I've been struck by the fact that, you know, maybe I have been running the wrong race. I've been throwing my energy into the wrong things. I have been supporting the wrong endeavors. And, and sometimes, and I don't know if you've ever felt like this, that the Spirit of God just comes into our lives and gives us those moments when the lights goes on and says, you're running in the wrong race. There are areas in your life where you are so invested that now have a hold on you and you are living less than you were meant to be. There are areas in, in my life where I've become so competitive, so prideful. There, there were moments in my story where it just seemed to always be about thriving and competing and, and, and being seen in a certain way, even in ministry, right? Pastors, we are guilty of this. We, we want to be good pastors of good churches. And we exaggerate the stats more than athletes in any sport could ever imagine. Look at this room filled with, what are we, 500 people? 500 this morning. Yeah. It affects your ability to live well and to live out the teachings of Jesus. And it's a humbling kind of realization. So if you have your Bibles with you or devices, I'm going to invite you to look with me at a little letter that's kind of buried there in the New Testament. If you flip your pages too quickly, you'll miss it. The book of Philippians. You may need to use the table of contents to find it. The book of Philippians. Uh, the church in Philippi is this kind of wealthy, upstart church. And the Apostle Paul's writing to them when he says in Philippians 2 in verse 3, he says, do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition. It's kind of like he's saying to this church, I want you to make no decisions. I want you to take no actions. May there be no choices among you, no words spoken that come out of your mouth that are motivated by these things. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. Or pride. Uh, keep your finger on that page, and I want to draw your attention to one other scripture. This is uh, this is James, James, the brother of Jesus, James, who'd spent his entire life watching Jesus live a fully surrendered and perfect life. He's got words about this in James chapter three and verse sixteen. He says, "For where you have envy and selfish ambition." There you find disorder and every evil kind of practice. And again, here's, here's what James is getting at. 
Where these things are at work, selfishness, unchecked ambition, the bitterness of envy, and the and the and the the, the painfulness of pride. Where there is this unhealthy spirit of competition and comparing with other people, where all of that is at work, you're going to find disorder. That's an interesting expression. You'll find disorder. It, it takes me back. Um, to the very first chapter of the very first book in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, where describing those opening moments in the story of God, it says, in the beginning, you know these words, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was what? Formless, empty, disordered. The word for that in Hebrew, I remember almost no Hebrew anymore, Nick, but I, I remember this. The Hebrew word is tohu wabohu, empty, formless, void. It, it almost sounds like that, tohu wabohu. It, it, it's, it's a creation without meaning, without purpose. And then what happens? God speaks and he begins shaping the earth and gives it meaning and purpose. He brings order into chaos. It's not tohu wabohu anymore. You ever feel that when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, oh my goodness, tohu wabohu. But you go to work and you begin shaping it. And then suddenly there's meaning to what was there and, and beauty. We are the creations, the creative output of God. And as followers of Jesus, the decisions that we make and the actions that we take and the words that we speak have the ability to bring order to a chaotic world. But when these things that James and that Paul and the apostle in the letter to the Philippians, when these things that they're speaking about get in the way... Selfish ambition, vain conceit, envy. We're actually going backwards in the creation story. We're just bringing more chaos, more disorder into the world. It happens in our lives. It happens in our relationships. And when that disorder begins to really happen in a large way, it leads to, as James said, all kinds of evil practices. Kind of like the way that that C.S. Lewis, one of the 20th century's great writers and thinkers, the way that he defines evil. He says that evil is really just co-opted good. It's something good that God has designed that gets turned upside down. It's a pleasure that God has made for good purposes that gets corrupted. It gets twisted and tainted. So you have Paul saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You have James saying, these things, ambition, envy, they're going to lead you backwards in the creation story. They're going to lead to all kinds of evil. And friends, I don't think it's, I don't think it's just me growing up in the GTA who wrestles with this, with ambition and conceit and pride, these things that get in the way of a life that is meant to be flourishing being what God has made us to be. And so Paul takes all of those things 
and addresses them head on. So if you have your thumb in there still or a bookmark saved on your phone, let's look back at Philippians in chapter 2. I'm going to read this together, Philippians 2. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. And in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. But I love this. Here's Paul saying, don't do what you do, driven by ambition or conceit or pride. But but view others in a way that values them, that lifts them up. Take on the mindset that you saw at work in Jesus. Don't, don't set yourself at the pinnacle and look down at others. Don't view yourselves as competition for others, but see to their interests. Do what's necessary to help them advance. That's a beautiful scripture. And an impossible one. I mean, doesn't it feel impossible in our world? It's hard because we've been taught to achieve. We've been taught to compete. Competition is rewarded. Success is encouraged. Drivenness is valued. Our identity is rooted in how much we've achieved. We've been taught to see other people at some level as a threat. If somebody else wins, it means I didn't. And I can't win too. And envy, I mean, envy particularly, is this really dangerous thing. The book of Proverbs says, it will rot your bones. <laughs> envy will rot your bones. It robs you of joy. It steals away your contentment. Because it, it gets in the way of you being able to see what's good in your life, what's beautiful, how God has equipped and rewarded and blessed you. And all you can see is what somebody else has and you don't. Envy works on this idea of limited good. For you economists out there, this is the zero-sum economy when it comes to the realm of goodness and blessing. And it's based on this idea of scarcity. There's only so much good to go around. And this was the idea that was prevalent in the ancient Near East, in the, the time leading up to Jesus, in the time of Jesus. The belief of, of most of the cultures was that, that God or the gods, there was only so much good stuff that they could pour out on people. So if somebody over here gets blessed with a good marriage and a great home and a full backyard, lots of livestock, or they're blessed financially, it has you thinking, wow, if that person has got that much good stuff in their life, there's just not as much left over to go around for me and for my family and my tribe. There's only just a little bit of favor that the heavens have to offer. And so if it gets poured out in one place, there's not enough left to go around. And envy forces us to see the blessing in other people blinds us so we can't see it in our own. And this sort of zero-sum economy has us actually praying under our breath that other people would fail, that they would fail or somehow slip down the ladder of prosperity. And again, in the ancient Near East, the idea was that then somehow all of those blessings, they, they evaporate back up into the heavens and they can fall down fresh on somebody else, maybe me. So people would mumble curses under their, under their breath about prosperous neighbors, 
hoping that that gets sent back and reassigned and it falls heavily on me. That's why it's so dangerous because it actually has you resenting and working against those who are around you. And Paul, in writing this, in writing this little letter to Philippians, says, hey, don't do that. Don't see your neighbors and other people as threats or competition. Don't be envious. Take the way, the radical way of humility. And it was a radical way. There was nothing laudable about being humble in the ancient world. It was not a virtue. It was a thing of scorn. Take on the mindset, the perspective that Jesus had toward other people. Look what the Bible says here, describing Jesus. This is Philippians 2 again. Starting to read at verse 6, it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't count his equality with God as something that could be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, he, he found himself being made in human likeness. And then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further, became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. Folks, that is lightning in a bottle. There was nothing in the world that could have possibly prepared people for an understanding of God like this. Nobody had ever conceived that God would set aside everything majestic, all authority and dignity, all honor, and come to earth not as a regal authority to be doted on and kowtowed to and served, but, but look what he does here. Jesus empties himself out. He doesn't claim title or position for advantage. He takes on the posture of a servant. And then it goes even lower. A servant who suffers. A servant is so obedient to the mission that, that God has in the world that he's willing even to endure the scorn, the shame, the contempt of crucifixion so that we could be lifted up. And that's the beauty of the image of the cross is that as the Son of Man is lifted up, the scriptures say, it allows us to be lifted out of our own darkness. And in a culture where it's so easy, our culture, to be defined by performance, by what we've done, to allow ambition and pride and envy to seep in, Paul is saying, no, 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 there is another way. This is the way for the people of the way. It's a way of humility. It's a way of service. Service will be the great antidote to ambition and pride and envy and, and humility will be the posture, will be the practice of Jesus' disciples. It was the most radically countercultural agenda of the first followers of Jesus. Do you know how it is that the people of the way, the early disciples, gained traction in the world? They just outloved and outserved everybody else. And they got noticed. See how they love not just one another, but those outside of their immediate family. 
they got noticed as far away as Rome. And eventually a fire was lit in Rome that spread to the whole world. But it wasn't lit by military force, by majesty and title, by arrogance and pride. They just outserved everyone else. So, in a sense, all of this 15 minutes has been a long preamble to a short message. Because we come today in this series that we've entitled The People of the Way to the subject of service. Service is a discipleship issue. And I want to say that because sometimes when we teach on service, uh, it feels like, well, this is the church's recruitment strategy. We're shy a few volunteers. Let's get the pastor to preach on service. Uh, it's just like the, when you start teaching on, on tithing or stewardship. You're running behind on the budget. Let's get the, the pastor to give the fundraising message. But no, stewardship uh, or service is, a, is an issue of discipleship, not because it's a recruitment strategy, but because it is God's best way to shape and mold the character of his people. It is his best tool for combating selfishness and envy and conceit. A Christ-centered life is always a service-oriented life. And it's not so because God somehow needs us to do his work in the world. It is so because we need to do it in order to become the people God has created us to be. And anything less is sin. To live less than God made you to be. Does that make sense? Service is not about recruiting people. Service is about shaping people. It is a discipleship issue. And from the very earliest of days, this was one of the defining issues of the people of the way. Let me give you one other kind of fascinating historical anecdote, fascinating to me at least. In the New Testament times, in the ancient Near East, there were two classes of clothing generally that you would encounter people wearing on the street. There was one that people wanted to wear, and there was one that, that people really were, would be ashamed. No, nobody wanted to wear. The one that people wanted to wear was called the shirt of honor. Roughly translated, shirt of honor. Usually brightly colored with uh, ties in the back and well tailored on the sleeves. If somebody walked down the street wearing a shirt of honor, you saw them, you knew immediately this is a person of influence, a person of position. They had status, they had power, and it demanded your respect. And inside, you hope maybe someday that'll be me. And probably inside you whispered a little prayer, maybe even a curse, that they would fall down the ladder a little bit because then all of that good blessing evaporates into the heavens and it falls down on me, the shirt of honor. But there was another article of clothing. Nobody wanted to wear it, but actually most people wore it. It was called the robe of humility or the servant's robe. It's probably the best translation, the servant's robe. Where do you find that language, that specific form of apparel? Let me give you one place. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 13, you find Jesus who puts on, and here's the word, the robe of humility 
or the servant's apron. He places it around himself. He reaches for a basin and water and a towel, and he begins to scrub the sand off his disciples' feet. And we're still left wondering when we read it, Jesus, really? Uh, Really? On, On your knees? Dealing with the, the, the muck and the mire of, of, of human uncleanliness? Really? Uh, the person who saw it right up close was Peter, there at the table on the night when Jesus performed that almost unimaginable act of humility and service. Peter saw it up close. He watched how Jesus oriented his life and saw it dramatically demonstrated here. And then he writes about how the church ought to follow his example. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. And this is what he says. All of you, all of you clothe yourselves in humility towards each other. Put on the servant's robe. And remember, God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. Clothe yourselves in humility. Look to serve each other. Look to value other people above yourself, to lift them up, because that's, that's always what Jesus strove to do. And if that's hard for you, I mean, this is just a moment of honesty. And we said at the beginning of this series that there are going to be these moments of, of real honest wrestling. If that's hard for you, if your priorities and your pride doesn't allow for it, then I think what we need to say is that you will find yourself frequently in your life on the opposite side of God. And I don't mean that in, 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 a, in an angry way. I mean that in, in a sorrowful way. Because you're going to find that in your life, in your choices, and your practices, you're living with a posture that doesn't allow for God to move because maybe you don't need him. You don't need to follow the way of Jesus. You don't want anybody to see that in your own life you have need for a Savior or a rabbi or a Lord. God opposes the proud. But look what it says in the next verse, in verse 6. It says it so beautifully. It says, humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand so that he can lift you up in his time. That's that's such a beautiful image, isn't it? When you choose the way of service, the way of humility, what is it that God does? He outstretches his mighty hand. It takes you back to that, that great Old Testament story, the penultimate story of the Old Testament, the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, when he stretches out his mighty hand and releases slaves from bondage. And, and God is going to do that for you. He will give you honor. I mean, as the old axiom said, pride comes before the fall. But here's the kingdom axiom. This is also true. Humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. When you humble yourself, when you take on the way of Jesus, the perspective, the, the mindset of Jesus, it serves as, as the best antidote, spiritual antidote to to all of that stuff that, that, that accumulates and corrodes the arteries of our soul, ambition and pride and envy that will rob you of joy. But when you put on humility, the, the servant's robe, honor is due. Honor is due.
clothe yourselves in humility. That's what the scripture says. Such an interesting metaphor. A, a reminder that you, you need to do this. You need to choose this. Clothe yourself. It's a conscious choice. It's a choice that on a very practical level you make every morning. You made the choice this morning. Going to church, I need to clothe myself. Uh, it's church day. You can't wear jeans. Or maybe you can't. But, but you clothe yourself. This is also a choice. You literally put this on. In every encounter, you have to choose. I might have a better education. I might actually know more than the other person in this conversation. I might have more position, more authority, more title. I could wear the shirt of honor, but I won't. As Jesus refused to do. In every conversation, he puts on the servant's robe. And, and you see him striving to find ways to lift up the other person? How can I add value to your life? How can I help you flourish in God's eyes? How can I help you to thrive? That's God's call in the lives of those who aspire to be the people of the way. Years ago, a colleague of mine, he was actually the director of Young Street Mission for many, many years, he put it this way, and it's, I think it's the most telling expression for why God uses service, why it's so important in the heart and the mind of a follower of Jesus. But this is what he said. He said, the church, it needs the poor and the marginalized just as much, maybe more, than they need the church. The church needs the poor just as much as the poor need the church. What did he mean? You aspire to be a follower of Jesus. You want to be one of those people of the way. You don't want to be ruled by, by selfish ambition and envy and pride. How do you do it? You serve. You serve. And you can't just choose humility. You have to live humility. You have to decide with your one and only life and with all of your relationships and all of the opportunities that God puts in front of you that you are going to set aside that shirt of honor and that you are going to take up the mantle of service. You know, the, the word for humility, which was not a good word, again, it was not a virtue. The word for humility in, in Latin is the word humus. And it actually means soil, like heaven's soil. It's what cultivates the heart. It's where the fruit of the Spirit grows. It's the right kind of soil, humus. The word for pride, interestingly, in Latin is hubris which means stone or cement. Into every relationship, every conversation, we will bring one of those two articles, fertile soil or hardened cement. And we have a decision to make. Am I going to fight for honor and pride or or will I aspire to live like Jesus with a heart filled with heaven's most vibrant, fertile soil. And when we gather together with church leaders, 
one of the questions that we start to ask each other is not just how you're doing, but how are you serving? In fact, that might be a great, great question for the parking lot. Not just tell me how are you doing, tell me how are you serving? And, and through that you get shaped and you get formed. And, and you don't allow that other set of attitudes, you know, pride and unhealthy competition and vanity to corrode your soul. Because those attitudes, to be clear, those attitudes will allow you to make your way in this world, but it won't be the way. It won't be the way of Jesus. It won't have with it the exhilaration of participating in God's work day by day, the joy of of seeing other people lifted up, the assurance moment by moment, week by week, that we are becoming just a little bit more like the one whose name we are privileged to bear, the name of Jesus. And folks, if all of this sounds just very strange to you, very unattainable. Let me remind you again of the simple three-phrase summary that we have been learning through this series. If you think that this is impossible, you're going to say this with me. On my own, I can't. Say, I can't. I can't. But guess what? God can. And what am I going to do? I think I'll let him. On my own, I can't. But in my life, God can. Fertile soil. I think I'll let him. Then we just pray, God, would you father us through this so that I can take delight in serving other people, lifting them up, valuing them above my own needs, my own desires, my own aspirations. I can't. But God, you can. I think I'll let you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this, for this family, for the church gathered together online and in the room. Lord, we don't want to, we don't want to run the wrong race. We don't want to live the wrong lives. We don't want to invest in the wrong places. We want to be like you. We want to be like Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that every person in the room today, every person listening in the room where they are gathered, God, that you would invest in us not just the capacity to make the church, the city, the world better, but to do so through the route of humility and service. God, you've gifted us. Help us to see the gifts, to feel the work of the giver, not to focus on how other people have been likewise endowed. Open our eyes, I pray, and open our minds. Help us find the dignity again in putting on that servant's robe, that servant's apron. Let us be the kind of church that models what it means to carry a servant's heart that lifts up and values others more than ourselves. And God, we'll give you glory. We'll give you praise. And we'll give you honor. And together all God's people said, Amen.